Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. And today we're talking with Kimberly Reed, the former chairman of the board of directors, president and CEO of the Export-Import Bank of the United States. Whew. The Export-Import Bank of the United States is the official export credit agency of the United States federal government with a focus on assisting small businesses and supporting American jobs by facilitating the export of U.S. goods and services. In today's episode, we're going to talk about Kimberly's roots and values that were formed while growing up in West Virginia, where she learned the importance of reaching out, taking a risk, picking up the phone. You just never know who may have an impact on your life. We get a master class on understanding how the Export-Import Bank works, its purpose, and how small businesses and startups can utilize these resources. The biggest theme, or so what, I hope you take away from this conversation is how Kimberly formed her work ethic and the advice she shares with others. In particular, I love how she talks about having self-awareness and how it's important for a leader to know how your team views you and how you can make yourself better. Please enjoy my conversation with Kimberly Reed. Kimberly, welcome to Fast Frontiers. It's so nice to have you here this morning. I'm so excited to join you, Tim, and uh, it's so exciting uh, to celebrate America's business success. Awesome. Well, you have so much to share and um, looking forward to it. And I hope our entrepreneurs are going to get some great takeaways you know, from our conversation here today. You know, speaking of pioneers and the fast frontier and innovation that's accelerating in unexpected places, one of the least expected places might be the government. So that's interesting. But you've been a pioneer in your own right over the years in terms of your leadership. Uh, we'd love to just have you share in your own words kind of how you see your career journey, some of those frontiers that you've explored and traveled through. Absolutely. And I have to smile, uh, Tim, because when we were talking previously, uh, you know that my mother's family is from Marietta, Ohio. For those listening who want a new book to read, I really recommend David McCullough's Pioneers. And so it talks about the spirit. I'm, uh, you know, half Ohioan and half uh, West Virginian. So I'm the from Buchanan, West Virginia. And I would say that that mountaineer spirit and the values that uh, that West Virginians hold true really uh, gave me a great foundation and a great background to now uh, uh, be where I am today. So that is awesome. So grew up in West Virginia, have a law degree, pre-med, worked on Capitol Hill for seven years doing oversight and investigations, which is very important for any company to be aware of. Congress is always looking. Served at the Treasury Department, senior advisor to two CEOs, John Snow, who was CEO of CSX Railroad, and Hank Paulson, who was CEO of Goldman Sachs. Before leaving Treasury, and this was in the Bush administration, I wanted to get line management experience. So I did something that's very important to the middle part of our country, and that was I headed something called the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. And so those of you who are looking for opportunities in poor parts of our country today, I would point you to that, the CDFI Fund, and especially a new markets tax credit program that they offer that really incentivizes capital into uh, uh, rural America, as well as other distressed mm-hmm. communities across the country. 
I worked briefly at, at, uh, in New York and headed also an organization that dealt with food and agriculture issues for about seven years, not only focused on helping companies thrive uh, globally, but also communicating the science on food safety, nutrition, and health. So I believe that as a good leader, not only do you need the substance, but you need to be a good communicator as well. And I think that's something that all leaders should strive to do. How do we improve what, what we do and how do we share that message with our stakeholders? And then uh, back in 2017, I was asked to go join the administration and join an organization called the Export-Import Bank. And that took two and a half years to get confirmed by the Senate. But I was confirmed 79 to 17, which is outstanding for any nominee. Uh, we can talk about that at some point, but I was uh, so honored to lead an institution as its first woman chairman of the board, president and CEO, 87-year-old institution that is our nation's official export credit agency. Wow. So you... Uh have been involved in a lot of areas that interconnect between policy and a government and innovation and industry and and appreciate all of the assets that we do have across the country and in the middle of the country which is which is terrific you know from a leadership standpoint what lessons would you say if you were passing down to or any other young young ladies uh, uh, that aspire to kind of achieve the leadership positions that you have, what, what lessons would you share with them? I would say work hard, know your substance. And uh, as you're, as you're um, you know, growing in an organization or company, it's not about you. It's about the organization and the bottom line. So you need to take the approach, I think, is looking at your leadership and saying, what, what do I have to offer to help uh, uh, this organization be more successful? And take it out of being about you which I know a lot of uh, millennials uh, are uh, said to, to be focused on them. It is how your skills take an organization or a company to a new level and work hard. I sat in a chair for hours and hours and hours in my 20s and 30s. And I would also say find great mentors and sponsors, as we call them, people who believe in you, want to be invested in you, and teach you those skills. And have self-awareness. A lot of um, management tools now involve something called a 360 review. And that might be hard for a lot of executives to have, but it's important to know how your, your team views you as a leader and what you can do to be better. And constantly get training and, uh, and build that awareness on best practices. You've got to keep attuned to what's happening, not only uh, within your organization, but within competing uh, organizations and sectors, because if you don't keep up, you're going to lose the talent. So you can start learning those skills as a young person, whether you're in a, a 4-H club, I was in 4-H, and that taught me a lot from fourth grade, uh, doing public uh, speaking uh, demonstration uh, contests where you present a topic and you're judged on it, and then you hopefully bring it to sc scale someday, just like you're doing, Tim. Yeah. So was there, was there anyone in your family that had any kind of relevant experience to what you, your, your, your path and, and some of the roles that you've had in your career? I would say my grandmother, uh, my mother died when I was nine. And uh, so my grandmother, Mommers or Ava Street really stepped in and was 
my force. And, uh, you know, she did not have a college degree. She uh, was not a successful business person. But what was she? She was a hard worker. And she saw where I needed to improve uh, myself, because I was a very shy fourth grader after my mother died. And she didn't even give me a choice. She put me right into 4-H. And she made sure that I was involved in activities that developed the skills where I needed to, to be strengthened. So I would say that. Also, my father, he's a lawyer in a small town in Buchanan. And kids are always watching what their parents are doing. And when I was growing up, no way I wanted to be a lawyer. What was that all about? Boring. <laughs> briefs. Right. I didn't want to be in briefs. And, uh, and uh, But yet on, you know, he had on the, the, the Sunday morning news shows. And that would be going on. He would have the news on. This is the 70s when we only had three channels plus PBS. Right. But he'd always have the news on, these Sunday news shows on newspapers in our house. And I'm like, oh, what is this? I want to play, but it sinks in. Kids always reject, I think, what their parents want to do and they need to figure it out for themselves. So by the time it came uh, time for me in undergrad to take the MCAT and go to law uh, med school, I'm like, who am I and what do I love? And mm -hmm. it was public policy and the law and those things that my father exposed me to. So it's important to expose your kids to things. So I think he takes great pride. Now, I was just back in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia last week, and I was giving, given an award by West Virginia Executive Magazine Lawyer and Leader Award. Wow. And, uh, this it was the big, was supposed to happen in uh, 2020, and they had to post wow because of COVID, but I think my dad was very proud of me and I was very proud of him, but I was also very proud of future leaders that I invited who are at the uh, law school, who uh, I really believe in mentoring young people. So those are a few, a few, a few people. And then a couple teachers. One uh, was an undergrad professor named Robert Rupp, and uh, you can still hear him on national public radio occasionally. When I was at West Virginia Westland College pre-med, Westland made its Beauty of Liberal Arts College. Uh, Westland had its students take something called J-Term, where you would take one course for three weeks. And the uh, beauty of a small liberal arts college, which is what I needed at age 18, was that you have to take... Um, you know, a, a wide swath of classes. And so I signed up for my history and government credits and took this course called JFK 1960 in the West Virginia primary. And this new professor at Westland wanted to share his interest in this very important uh, election. Kennedy was a Catholic. And back in 1960, that was a big deal to getting elected. Right. And Protestant West Virginia, he needed to win that to show the world or the country that he could be president. And so he went about doing that. And uh, Dr. Rupp taught this course. I learned a lot. And then Dr. Rupp had each of us write a paper. And he looked at me and he said, you need to go interview someone who was active in 1960 in the, in the, in the campaign or, or uh, the West Virginia politics. He's like, you need to go interview the sitting secretary of state, Ken Heckler. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yes, go interview him. That would be a great thing for your paper. And I'm like, you know, freshman in college. 
Why is this guy? Why is this person going to talk to me? Right. So, and this is before the internet. So I got out the phone book, probably went to the, library, <laughs> the state capitals phone book, figure out how to call the secretary of state. What? And I called, I asked for appointment. I got mm. it. And next thing I know, I'm seated in the beautiful uh, capital of West Virginia, which has a gold dome. And Ken Heckler is telling me everything and I'm taking down notes. What did that teach me? It taught me to show up and ask big. And I couldn't believe I did this. And uh, so Dr. Rupp was a big inspiration. A few years later, I was getting ready to go to law school. And I read in the local paper that there was this big national conference taking place two hours away from me in our state capitol. And it was going to have a lot of young leaders. I wonder what that's like. Dr. Rupp would tell me to go down there. So I just got in my car and drove down to the Charleston Marriott, bought a ticket, and went to this national conference that I was not invited to. And my world <laughs> changed. There was a keynote speaker, and he had a bevy of white hair. And uh, he got up on stage and gave a speech about welcoming everyone to West Virginia, giving the history of West Virginia. The speech was entitled, It's a Thing Called Character. Lincoln had it. And he went through how West Virginia is the child of the Civil War, the values that Lincoln had, the values that West Virginians have. And I was smitten by this speech, uh, mesmerized. Mm. And wouldn't you know, that was like in June of 1993. In September of 93, I go to law school and I'm seated in my contracts class and in walks this man with bright white hair, the same man, uh, oh Professor God. Forrest Bowman. So I got to, uh, I got to honor him last week, uh, you know, nearly 30 years later um, at this, uh, at this award ceremony. But uh, those are some big influences in my life. That is incredible. These, you just shared a whole truck full of nuggets that, <laughs> that I love. But the, 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 this last one about just asking and showing up, you know, whenever I get a chance, the young you know, folks ask me, that's one of the things I stress that's always served me well. You just just pick up the phone, right? Call, reach out. And it's amazing how many people uh, respond to that because they've been in those same shoes, right? And, 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 and they're going to return the favor. It's, it's, it's amazing to see and, and hear how it's affected your career by just that little act. And I would say, as I counsel a lot of uh, young people and former employees, um, you got to get yourself out there because uh, the people you expect to help you the most don't. And the person you hardly know is going to give you your next job and change your life. Oh, my gosh. And you just have to find that type of person that has that approach to life. And uh, I would say to all the leaders that are listening, help everyone you can make a difference in their lives. Don't make it be about yourself because uh, your trajectory won't go as far because someday one of those people may hire you. And uh, everyone's always looking and paying attention. Even even think back when you're a little kid, kids are looking at you and they're learning from yes. your example. Even at age four and five, they're watching. And that's, even the little that's, things, not the big yeah. thing, even the little things. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. How should entrepreneurs think about and, and relate to this, you know, uh, things like the uh, XM Bank or, or you're involved with the Council on Competitiveness and just their role and the, and the role of government in what they do, particularly in this economy that, as most entrepreneurs know, is, is global, right? 
Absolutely. 95% of the United States customers are outside of our borders. And it's very daunting, I'm sure, starting from scratch. Mm -hmm. I have a young sister, uh, age 31, who just opened a small gift store in Fayetteville, North Carolina this weekend. I was there for the grand opening. That is daunting to, you know, rent the place, get the furniture, get the, get the inventory, pay for it all. Hope, uh, hope, hope people, people show up. <laughs> it's, it's, I really yeah. admire the grit of people who do that. And you're going to be successful. And sometimes you're going to fail. But every failure also has its great lessons. And I know she's going to be a success. But if you're um, an entrepreneur and you want to access the global marketplace, um, I would say read a lot and look and see the success stories that have happened before you and, and what were their trajectories and kind of use that to inform you. And so with the Export-Import Bank, it is a big institution, 87-year-old institution known as our nation's official export credit agency. It can support financing at any one time on its books of $135 billion. Wow. And so we'll just briefly touch on the big thing it does. We're talking about big companies, foreign purchasers around the world. They want to buy American-made products, or maybe they want to buy Chinese products or German products. Uh, uh, they're going to look for quality, uh, reliability, but they're also going to look for financing, perhaps. And so in our world, there are some markets that are going to grow. We know the continent of Africa is going to grow. We know that India is going to grow. Just look at the population demographics and where do you want to be involved and so let's say you make a widget. What, what kind of widgets have you supported in, in your career? It's, well, I buy a lot of widgets. I'm a gadget guy. But uh, most of the companies we invest in are software oriented. Okay. So goods and services. Right. So let's say you're a software company and you want to sell a product. Okay. So you want to sell your software in Senegal. And it's really expensive. And the buyer maybe have some issues. And so they need a loan. And maybe the big banks say, mm, we're overextended in this country. This country is too risky for us. Whatever the issue may be, that foreign purchaser can come to the export import bank for a direct loan to buy that made in USA good or service. And so it goes through very due a lot of due diligence, extreme underwriting. Exxon has an excellent uh, default rate excellent. Right now, when I left XM on January 20th, it was up to, uh, a little bit because of COVID, 0.7%. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but the whole time I was there before COVID, always under 0.5%, which you ask any financial institution, that is uh, the envy of them. They know that that is outstanding because we protect the taxpayer. It's uh, you know the taxpayer that's on the line and the full faith and credit of the United States is backing alone. So XM will do due diligence, will present to the board. I was chairman of the board. Any deal over $25 million, uh, smaller deals just go through delegated authority process at the staff level, but, uh, but uh, we make the direct loan and then have the terms uh, and whatnot to get repaid. But the mission is supporting U.S. jobs by, or I would say supporting American jobs by facilitating U.S. exports. So direct loans. Also, bank may want to give the loan, but they need a guarantee. And so the second product that Exum does is guarantee 
guarantee of the loan that the private sector financial institution may be offering the foreign purchaser. We also do something important in uh, the time of uh, COVID, so a supply chain financing guarantee, working capital loan guarantee. Again, working with the financial institution to help companies in the United States be successful. And then for those small companies really starting out, and I met a lot of them during my tenure, including in Ohio, export credit insurance. So I think that is something really important for small businesses. You want to send uh, your uh, widget to Senegal. You can apply for an insurance product from us uh, to uh, make you whole if the, if the buyer uh, uh, doesn't honor uh, the deal. And uh, I celebrated that um, uh, throughout the country. Uh, an example of that might be I was down in Florida and there was a towel company. They're sending their towels to resorts around the world. And so they use export uh, credit insurance, but many, many, many different examples. And happy to tell you mm. where you can find examples of that. But one would be um, last day at XM, we published our annual 2020 report. Um, but it's called, all, I entitled All America. XM supports American jobs. But it basically goes through all of uh, what the agency does and gives you um, a lot of good examples um, because we awarded exporters of the year who use our various products and services. And so you can also read about a couple of Ohio companies, uh, including Consolidated Metal Products and Robbins Sports Surfaces that makes basketball courts in Cincinnati, but they're sent to 70 countries. And uh, also our new broker wow. of the year that we gave an award to, uh, JZJ Insurance Services based out of um, Columbus. Um, they also are very involved with what Exxon does, headquartered in Columbus and focused in on that um, trade credit and political risk insurance. So those are important products to, to, to companies that uh, I'm sure you are helping uh, with your efforts as well. Yeah, it's important to be aware of all those resources available as you're a growing company. What what trends have you seen from that vantage point within the technology industry? At Exim, we were essentially shut down for four years. I'm going to say that mm -hmm. the world knows what export credit agencies are now. And uh, there's 116 of them. And China has two official export credit agencies, several unofficial um, methods, but every country has this now. And the United States and our Congress make sure that our XM is of the highest standard. And we've got rules in the Congress that senators are very smart on. And so a few senators, free market libertarian Republicans, small swath, don't think it's the role of government to do what we we did and do at XM. And so they basically blocked the nominees to the board because the bylaws say you need it or a charter says you need a board to do deals over $25 million. So they sat on nominations and blocked to keep the agency shut for four years. And so I gave two and a half years of my life to get through the Senate confirmation process and build understanding and also pledge to transform the agency. And as part of that, after I finally was confirmed and worked on transforming the agency, Congress had to do a reauthorization of our agency. And uh, so opened up a bank, 
got it going again, trying to get customers to be focused on our products and learn about us, and then had to go through reauthorization. As part of that reauthorization process, Congress focused in on something very important, which was looking at the future and where are we headed or where should we be, be headed. And so they reauthorized us for the longest um, tenure in the history of the bank, seven years, so happy to get it there. But also they said, we want you to advance America's comparative leadership in the world. And we want you to focus in on 10 transformational export sectors. And we are going to give you the legislation Uh, We want you to do this so much with these companies in the United States that we're going to give you legislation that allows these sectors to match the rates, terms, and conditions in the competitive global marketplace that the People's Republic of China may be offering the foreign purchaser. And so you get special, special ability to do that. So what are the, so I see these as the trends, um, these sectors, artificial intelligence, Biotechnology, and I come from the world of food and ag, so I also see that as food and ag Mm -hmm. biotech. Biomedical sciences, which we know is very important, obviously, as we get through COVID and we see the importance of um, research. Um, Wireless communications, including 5G. Uh, Quantum computing. Renewable energy, energy efficiency, and energy storage. Semiconductors and semiconductor machinery. Emerging fintech, and that is uh, the full cloth of uh, of that, from tracking terrorist financing attempts to you know helping helping. Uh, that uh, would include that would include crypto. Yep. Yeah. yep. So so fintech uh, Congress did not mm-hmm. define it; they just said that word. So I would say, if you're a crypto company, you make an application. It's judged on its merits. You work with the staff, and we'll see whether they feel that you have reasonable assurance of repayment of the financial products that you might be seeking. Water treatment and sanitation. I mentioned renewable energy, so that is a really big thing, I think, uh, right now, underscored by President Biden. And then finally, high-performance computing. So I'd be interested in hearing where you're focused on Sounds this. Sounds like technology is dominating that top 10 list. So, so that's, that's, that's where I see the trends. Um, I just did an event a couple weeks ago with Peter Thiel. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is uh, obviously we know co-founder of PayPal and uh, some other important uh, companies and, and efforts. And he is a free market libertarian. And you can listen to the clip. Um, Nixon Foundation uh, is doing this thing called the Nixon Seminar, where there's a discussion once a month on a topic important to America's uh, national security and prosperity. And so Peter Thiel, I asked him. How else uh, could U.S. government be working with Silicon Valley to make a difference for our country? And I'd never met him before, never had a conversation with him before. And he immediately, free market libertarian, said, free market libertarians probably oppose XM, but I don't think that is very smart and we need more of it. So um, you can read uh, the, 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 the statement. But um, so even someone like him realizes there's a role for government and agencies like XM. Yeah, the, um, you know, making sure we're playing on a level playing field, you know, globally is hugely important, particularly since the global market is a bigger, you know, just a bigger opportunity for every single company. If you're not thinking globally, then yeah, odds are you may not end up being a market leader. So Kimberly, what would you recommend 
entrepreneurs do to better educate themselves on the opportunities and, and how they might think about how Exim Bank or, or, or you know, the, the role of government should play in their business and growth? I think uh, just sitting in uh, uh, the seat of someone in a small town in rural West Virginia, what would I do? As I traveled the United States uh, in person and virtually, I did a lot with uh, regional trade centers, the Department of Commerce, uh, Small Business Administration, Exim, a lot of um, different government agencies are regularly uh, presenting to um, these uh, these trade centers. So go find one. And if you need help, I know on Exim's website, we were a staff of 515 and we had um, eight regional offices. You can find them on Exim's website. So if you're really needing help getting plugged in, I would say look up that part on the website and find one of the staff and say, how do I plug in fully to opportunities from the government? And, and they could probably point you, I would assume, to where they're regularly engaged, but but even more than XM because that's just a very fine tool. Um, the Commerce Department and SBA uh, and, and others also are co-located um, at centers throughout the United States. So it's pretty easy for you to, to, to figure that out if you do some searching on the web. And so that would probably be uh, my first step, your regional trade uh, centers, and then and then these these uh, government hubs. Because even if you're in rural America, the Department of Agriculture, for example, has um, regional offices. And uh, I would say call your member of Congress. I worked on Capitol Hill for um, seven years, as I mentioned, and this is the job of their staff um, is to help you learn and navigate. And uh, they might not have all the answers, but they have uh, the ability to look, and they should know district offices, state offices, constituent services, they should also plug you into um, the opportunities that they know about. And, and, and our country is continually changing and new things come online. You might be involved in some trade associations. Sometimes that has a dollar amount. I know that's associated with it. So if you're small, that might be daunting. But uh, but some of the small business uh, organizations, I was committed to, to small business, XM. 90% of what we did was small business deals, small all the time, but then you have one big widget that you're financing that can offset lots of small ones. So, um, but uh, but uh, um, I think some of these small business trade associations um, look on their websites, go to some conferences, network, word of mouth, keep smart, read, but uh, that, that's, those are just kind of some, some initial steps I would do. Have you ever taken yeah, it? Yeah, goes, it goes, it goes. It goes back to what you said at the very beginning, you know, show up, just call, call your congressman, ask for some help. Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask. That's terrific. Well, I think, first of all, thank you very much. I think for anybody who's, uh, if they're intimidated, you know, the big faceless government, you know, will they help or not uh, by getting to know you and understanding where your passion is and your commitment to helping uh, entrepreneurs and commercialization in the U.S. Hopefully this will help bring down some walls and encourage people to reach out and learn more and see how they can grow their businesses. So thank you very much, Kimberly. And thank you for what you're doing because capital is what makes success happen. Right. And, uh, and it's really important that we have um, uh, great people like you caring um, so much. And thank you for being dedicated to those, uh, those small businesses and people with big dreams, because some of those big dreams are going to go into big reality. And uh, I hope uh, uh, in the years to come, you can celebrate 
um, U.S. job creation in every uh, corner of our country that you've helped make possible. So, Amen to that. Thank you. It's terrific. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you the final conversation of season three with Alex Frohmeyer, co-founder and CEO of Beam Dental in Columbus, Ohio. The Fast Frontiers podcast is brought to you by Refinery Ventures. Our producer is Abby Fittis. Audio engineering by Astronomic Audio, marketing, content, and social media support from Content Callout, and our podcast platform is Casted.